production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Harriet Applegate, Executive Secretary of the North Shore Federation of Labor and a past member of the City Club's Board of Directors. I am honored to introduce today's speaker, former New York Times reporter and author of Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor, Stephen Greenhouse. The real wage has been declining since the 70s. We've seen a decline in manufacturing, rapidly advancing automation, and the offshoring of our jobs, the last of which has hit Northeast Ohio especially hard. Soaring corporate profits and CEO compensation, coupled with tax cuts and wage stagnation, has led to unprecedented, unprecedented and quite honestly staggering income inequality. Today's speaker will elucidate one of the primary, if not the primary, but almost always overlooked causes, the decline of unions. In the 1950s, more than a third of wage and salary workers belonged to unions. Today, membership is a scant 10.5% of the workforce, with the income, income gap between CEOs and workers greater than ever in our history and much larger than the gap in Western Europe where unions are powerful and wages are high. How did we get here? What can we learn from the successes of victorious struggles of the past? As our workforce continues to change, what does power for working people look like today and in the future? These are the questions explored in Stephen Greenhouse's newest book, Beaten Down, Worked Up, the past, present, and future of American labor. In it, he explores the evolution of the labor movement and how workers can regain and increase power in a changing economy. Mr. Greenhouse was a reporter for the New York Times for more than 30 years, 19 of which were spent as a labor and workplace correspondent. He also served as a business and economics reporter as well as a diplomatic and foreign correspondent. He has been honored with the Society of Professional Journalists Deadline Club Award, a New York Press Club Award, a Gerald Loeb Award for Distinguished Business and Financial Reporting, and the Hillman Prize for Book Journalism for his, late, for his last book, his last book, The Big Squeeze, Tough Times for the American Worker. A New York native, Mr. Greenhouse majored in government and letters at Wesleyan University and obtained a master's degree from the Columbia University School of Journalism. He is also a graduate of the New York University School of Law. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland and sisters and brothers in labor, please join me in welcoming to the stage Mr. Stephen Greenhouse.
Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I'm truly honored to be here. I can't believe I'm standing on the same, same stage where Robert Kennedy once spoke. So, um, so uh, it's an honor to have so many of you come hear me speak. Um, I'd, I'd like to thank Dan Maltrop and Stephanie Jansky and, and, and Tiffany France and the Deaconess Foundation and John Ryan for helping set this up and Amy Hanauer. Um, and, and really on, honored to be here. Uh, I'm a big fan of Cleveland. You know, I, I love the Rock and Roll Museum. I love the Museum of Art. I love your Hungarian restaurants. I love the Cavaliers with LeBron. Um, <laughs> I love your city spirit. But I must apologize. Uh, one of my favorite photos in the world is of my son, who works for the Chicago Cubs, on the airplane back from Cleveland on the night of November 3rd, <laughs> holding the World Series trophy. So, so, but, but I very much hope the Indians win the World Series very soon. I sincerely believe in sharing the baseball wealth between cities. Friends often ask me, why did I spend four years of my life writing this book? Uh, why didn't I just retire after leaving the New York Times? A big reason is that in my 19 years of covering labor and workplace matters for the Times, I saw that far too many Americans, especially young Americans, know very little, don't understand labor unions and the whole idea of worker, worker power and collective action and what they have accomplished over American history for tens of millions of workers. It often seems to me that a lot of Americans think that God handed down the 40-hour work week. And I seek to explain in the book, no, it was decades of struggle by workers and their unions that won the 40-hour work week and won pensions and won employer-sponsored health coverage and won paid sick days and won paid vacations and workers' compensation. Um, I just gobbled down my dinners, my lunch, sorry. Uh, there's much truth to the bumper sticker unions, the folks who brought you the weekend. In my book, I write about some important episodes, some of the most important episodes in labor history. The uprising of the 20,000 female garment workers in New York in 1909, which was a really the biggest uh, strike by women in American history. They were fighting not for a 40-hour work week, they were fighting for a 52-hour work week. I write about the Flint sit-down strike of 1936-37, which was probably the most important labor victory in the 20th century because it unionized the nation's largest company at the time, General Motors, and that pivotal victory really created a wave of unionization across the United States. I write about, I, there's a lot in my book about the Middle West, and I write about the, uh, the UAW and the Treaty of Detroit and, and Walter Ruther. Uh, that was a, a landmark contract, five-year contract in 1950. GM was eager to avoid more strikes and more walkouts. It was eager to expand. So in exchange for five years of labor peace, it gave the workers the, you know, a 20% after inflation raise, and the best uh, health benefits and pension benefits in the country. And that contract, that one union contract, became a model that was followed by hundreds of other companies and, and, and unions, and, and I argue probably did more to, to create the middle class in the United States than, than anything else. Um, in, my, um, in my book, I explain that over the last century, the only time when income inequality really narrowed was the era when unions were strongest, the 1940s to the 1970s. And, and the top 1%, their share fell from 21% to 8%. And, and that was, the, that was you know, largely because of the huge wage gains and lifting folks you know, by the steel workers, the auto workers, the, 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 the rubber workers, 
um, you know, construction workers, machinists. And now, with unions much weaker, we've seen you know, the worst income inequality since the 1920s, and the top 1% have gone from 8% back up to over 20%. The other day, I was speaking to a labor studies class at Rutgers, and a student there raised his hand and said, I don't think I'd ever want to join a union. I don't see why I should ever pay union dues. And I said to him, you know, let's unpack that. I said, you know, if you pay union dues, it's probably 1%, 1 1.25%, three-quarters of a percent of your income. But academic studies show that if you're a union member, you earn 13.6% more on average than non-union members if you factor in things like education and age. Um, if, uh, and, and if you're a union member, uh, like 80, over 80% 80 of union members um, have uh, pensions at work, whereas fewer than 50%, less than 50% of non-union workers do. Uh, on, on health coverage, union members pay in premiums about half as much as what non-union members pay towards health premiums. That saves people like $4,000 a year on, on, for family coverage. Uh, the, you know, there's the big problem of the gender pay gap. Uh, uh, unionized women make 94 cents on the dollar compared to uh, unionized men. Non-union women, they'll make only 70, w w you know, 94 cents on the dollar still isn't 100%, but it's close. But for non-union women, they make only 78 cents on the dollar compared to non-union men. And for African-American workers, African-American union members make 16% more than, than uh, non-union non African-Americans. And I told this student at Rutgers, and, and after all that, I probably haven't even mentioned the most important benefit of joining a union, aside from solidarity, is, is you, you can only be fired for just cause. And people don't realize how important that is. If you don't have just cause, you can come into work one day and your boss could fire you because he or she doesn't, you know, you know, is, is disappointed that you're not smiling or with your attitude. So a second reason I wrote the book is I wanted to sound an alarm about another problem that I think far too few people are paying attention to, and that is, uh, I'm sorry to say, that the power of workers in America has fallen to its lowest level in decades. And part of this is, of course, as, as Harriet, and, I, I, and Harriet, thank you very much for that wonderful introduction. You know, part of it, as Harriet says, is that there's a uh, big decline in union membership and union density. And, this de and in my book, I argue that this decline has hurt the nation in many ways. It helps explain why workers have suffered decades of income inequality. It helps explain our out-of-control income, uh, de suffered decades of wage stagnation. It helps explain our out-of-control income inequality. And the decline in worker power also helps explain why corporations and billionaires hold such huge sway over our policy and or our policy making and politics. One example of this, unfortunately, is that we have a president who is who is named as our labor secretary, the person who was corporate America's top gun, top lawyer in fighting against increased worker protections when the job of the labor secretary is to protect workers. Professors often debate the various reasons American workers are in many ways worse off than workers in other wealthy nations. But there's an overriding uh, agreement on one reason, that labor unions in the US are, are weaker than labor unions in any other industrial nation. Uh, I was looking at some, some recent statistics. Uh, in France, 98% of workers are covered by union contracts. In, in Belgium, 96%. In, 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 um, in Italy, 80%, in Germany, 56%, in Britain, 34%, in the United States, just 11%. We're the, we're the lowest of, of, uh, of all industrial nations. So why, you know, why, 
why is this? You know, the main reason worker power is so weak is that American corporations, I argue, fight harder than corporations in any other nation to beat back, indeed, quash labor unions. And unfortunately, many politicians, you know, have, you know, have also declared war on unions. You know, most famously, most infamously, Scott Walker in, in declaring war on, on public sector unions in Wisconsin. Two years later, with little notice, Iowa passed, uh, two years ago, Iowa passed a similar law, almost a carbon copy of the Wisconsin law that has effectively shut down uh, government worker unions in Iowa. And then we've seen many states pass what I like to call anti-union fee laws, others call them right-to-work laws, which I think is a terrible distortion of the English language. But you know, West Virginia, Kentucky, Indiana, Wisconsin, and Michigan have all enacted uh, right-to-work laws in, in, in recent years. Um, so everyone knows that about Scott Walker declaring war against unions, but few people realize that over the past decade, Wisconsin has lost more union members than any other state. It's lost 44% of its union members. Um, it's lost 177,000 union members. Donald Trump won Wisconsin by 22,700 votes. Michigan passed a right to work law and several laws that make it harder to unionize childcare workers and, and home care workers. Uh, Michigan has lost 146,000 union members over the past decade. Donald Trump won Michigan by 10,700 votes. Pennsylvania has lost 182,000 union members, and Donald Trump won Pennsylvania by 44,292 votes. Um, I often wonder whether the results of the 2016 elections would have been different if union membership in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and, and uh, Michigan hadn't fallen. Um, there's a study done by some professors at uh, Boston University in Columbia that found that when a state enacts right-to-work law, the turnout of the Democratic base falls by 3.5%. And in, you know, in Michigan, Donald Trump won by 0.2%, a lot less than 3.5%. Than in Wisconsin, Trump won by 0.8%. In light of today's, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm, so let me say this. So um, a third reason I wrote the book is to shine a light on another problem, that in many ways, American workers uh, are lacking some fundamental rights and protections that are basically universal in other in industrial nations. Uh, we are the only industrial nation that doesn't guarantee all workers paid parental leave, paid maternity leave. The only other nations in the world that don't guarantee paid maternity leave are Suriname, Papua New Guinea, and a few tiny Pacific Island nations. We are the only industrial nation that doesn't guarantee all workers paid vacation. And, and uh, you know, in the 28 nations of the European Union, every worker is guaranteed at least four weeks paid vacation. In Germany, five weeks, and in France, uh, six weeks. Uh, we and South Korea are the only industrial nations that don't guarantee all workers paid sick days. And, and the workers in the bottom quartile by income, 50% of them receive neither paid sick days nor paid vacation. In my book, I write about um, Patricia Hughes, a licensed practical nurse uh, who came down with severe pneumonia while caring for a paraplegic in Thornton, Colorado. Coughing, vomiting, and with 103 fever, she called her manager to say she needed to miss work for, for two days. She, she told me, I told him I was so weak that there was no way I could care for and move the patient. He responded, if you don't come in tomorrow, don't bother ever coming back. Too sick to work the next day, Hughes was fired 
and as a result of losing that job, she was evicted from her apartment. As all of you know, there's one more area where American workers lack a basic right. The US is the only industrial nation where all workers and their families are not guaranteed health coverage. So on a concrete level, that means if, if you're working in a factory in Ohio with 1,000 wor workers or a big box store you know, with 300 workers and it shuts down, you know, we're the only industrial nation where those 1,000 workers, factory workers or those 300 retail workers could lose their health coverage and their families could lose their health coverage. That seems rather uncivilized to me, especially in, in when we consider ourselves the wealthiest nation on earth. So um, in, in light of today's anti-worker trends and some of this bad news, many Americans are keenly frustrated. And, and that's one reason I believe that Americans are feeling more enthusiastic about unions. A Gallup poll that came out in August found that 64% of the American public approve of unions, that's near the, nearly the highest level in 50 years. That's up sharply from a decade ago when it was just 48%, it went up to 64%. Uh, I think people are pissed off about income inequality and wage stagnation and, and seeing you know, their wages are going nowhere while the stock market's at record levels, while corporate profits are at record levels. Uh, some MIT professors did a study last year that found that uh, 50% of non-union workers say they would vote to join a union if they could. That's up from 32% in the 1990s, so that's a very strong gain. Um, you know, other good news uh, is that, uh, you know, also showing workers' frustration, is we're seeing a lot of unionization among white-collar workers, adjunct professors, graduate students, nurses, and very much in my profession, journalism, you know, Vox, Vice, Slate, Salon, Huffington Post, uh, Refinery29, you know, New Yorker Magazine, New Republic, uh, the LA Times, no, the nation's two most anti-union papers, the LA Times and Chicago Tribune, you know, both unionized after being non-union and anti-union for over a century. The New York Times and the Washington Post were long, were long union, union publications. And we've also, uh, you know, also indicating uh, deep worker frustration is we're seeing the largest surge of strikes since the 1980s. And that was led by, well, so I, I turned in the manuscript to my book on a Monday, February 19th, last year, 2018. And things are fairly quiet for labor, I thought. Except for the fight for 15, there wasn't much exciting going on. So that was a Monday, February 19th. Three days later, February 22nd, there was this volcanic explosion in West Virginia. And you know, tens of thousands of, of uh, teachers in, in their red shirts you know, crowded into Charleston. And that really started a real surge for labor. You know, the baton was passed to Kentucky and Oklahoma and Arizona, then Los Angeles and then Chicago. And we saw the Marriott, the Marriott Hotel strikes in eight cities last fall and the stop and shop strike, uh, grocery strike in, in New England um, in, in April. And then we had the big GM strike. So there's something going on. I think that, you know, labor is stirring again after having been uh, very quiet and down. I think workers are really, you know, standing up and speaking out and fighting. Um, I do think, you know, that, that, you know, something is badly broken in the U.S. Um, I do, the one thing I, I say I, I agree with Donald Trump on is that the system is rigged. The system is usually rigged in favor of the rich and against unions and workers, against the little guy. But unfortunately, I believe Donald Trump has further rigged the system in favor of corporations and, and the rich. He has uh, very much rolled back uh, Barack Obama's effort to extend 
overtime pay to millions more workers. He's totally scrapped Obama's rule. And I thought this is very important. It got, hasn't gotten nearly, a much, nearly as much attention as it should. He scrapped Obama's rule that required Wall Street firms to act in the best interest of workers and retirees in handling the 401ks. You know, Donald Trump said he was running against Wall Street and running as a champion of workers and you know, scrapping that fiduciary rule. He's really not helping workers. You know, he's reduced the number of OSHA inspectors to the lowest, lowest amount in years. He's rolled back rules for oil and gas workers. He tried to roll back safety rules for, for coal miners, and he was stopped, stopped by courts. He scrapped the Obama rule that made it much harder to award federal contracts to companies that break overtime laws and safety laws. And so um, parts of my book are quite inspiring. I write about the rise of labor, um, you know, the uprising of the 20,000, the Flint sit-down strike, the Treaty of Detroit. Parts get pretty depressing where I write about the decline of labor in Scott Walker. I have a chapter on the air traffic controller strike, how globalization has, you know, very much hurt workers and hurt unions. I think a lot of people don't understand that, you know, in 1979, the U.S. had 21.5 million manufacturing workers. That fell by 40% to 12, 12 million and has really hurt, you know, very much hurt cities like Cleveland, states like Ohio. And it's also very much hurt the labor movement because, you know, factory workers were long the core of, of the union movement. So I devote the last seven chapters of my book to examining models and strategies for rebuilding worker power. And I write about the fight for 15, which um, I was the very first reporter to write about the fight for 15. And, and I remember almost exactly seven years ago, November 29, 2012, was the very first strike in New York City. 200 workers walked out at 20 restaurants. And I kind of thought, ah, this is, you know, nothing's much going to come of this. When they said they're fighting for $15, I said, that's a crazy number that's pie in the sky. Here we are, seven, less than seven years later, uh, seven states. I'm not going to name them. Uh, California, Illinois, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Maryland, and Connecticut have enacted a $15 minimum wage. And you know, some economists say that as a result of the fight for 15, some 24 million workers have had their raises, have, have, had, uh, have had their pay increased. Uh, I write about the culinary union in Las Vegas, uh, part of Unite Here, the Hotel Workers Union, which you know, while many unions have declined in size, the culinary union has gone from 18,000 members in, in uh, the 1980s to 60,000 today. And I devote a full chapter to it because I think it's a model that other unions can learn from. Um, it does a great job negotiating. It does a great job mobilizing its members. It does a great job communicating with its members. It's a union that's probably 70% female, probably 70% workers of color and immigrants. And, and you know, I, I profile an immigrant worker from Honduras, Frances Garcia. She's a housekeeper at the MGM Grand. She makes $19.51 an hour under the union contract. They're guaranteed 40 hours a week, 1951. That's $780 a week, about $40,000 a year. That's pretty damn good for a hotel housekeeper. You know, I visited her apartment. Uh, she raises three kids by herself. She has a nice three-bedroom apartment, big screen TV, nice leather couch. And it shows what a really effective union can do to, to lift workers. Non-union housekeepers nationwide average just $11 an hour. They probably work maybe just 30 hours a week very often. That's $330 a week, uh, $16,500, $17,000 a year. 
try raising three kids on that. So, and I should mention, Frances Garcia in, in, in Los Angeles, she's able to raise a family on her own without Medicaid, without food stamps, and it really shows how a good, strong union builds the middle class. Um, I, I, uh, you know, and I should mention, you know, there are some, you know, important union victories closer to home, not just the, not just the teacher strikes. You know, here in, in Cleveland, uh, in, in Ohio, um, uh, first, first Energy Solutions filed for bankruptcy. Or the organization wanted to very much uh, gut the pensions of 1,400 unionized workers and the unions representing them, the Utility Workers Union and the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, you know, really fought with them and, and filed suit. And finally, finally, um, First Energy Solutions agreed not to tinker with the pensions, to leave the pensions, to drop its plans, to embrace instead a much worse, much cheaper 401k. And, and you know, the attorney for the unions, Joyce Goldstein, said, this is a remarkable victory for workers and unions. The agreement reached means that the workers do not lose a penny in their pensions or the wages or in any other benefits. And you know, this shows that you know, companies are forever trying to squeeze workers. And it's important, you know, the, the folks who most effectively stand up to companies when they're trying to squeeze workers are unions. I have a quote from a, a professor who said, you know, of all the institutions in society, there's only one that day in and day out exists and fights to fight for moderate income Americans. That's unions. And, and uh, you know, corporations don't like unions because they try to raise wages and, 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 and get a larger share of profits uh, for, for the workers. Here in Cleveland, the SIU Local 1 has recently unionized 400 uh, security guards. Last April, it, it won terrific wage gains for 500 downtown janitors, getting them a 25% wage hike. Uh, they, they recently unionized. <laughs> they recently unionized 50 janitors at the ArcelorMittal steel mill. They ratified a great union contract recently that calls for a 60% raise over five years, lifting everyone to at least $15 an hour. Um, so, in, in the book, in <laughs> so, so in the book, I write about um, I have a whole lot about the Red Fred teacher strikes, and and you know, solidarity is very important, of course, but I try to make clear that agency. Individual agency is, is very important too. You need people who are like willing to stick their necks out and 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 you know create trouble, make trouble. So I, you know, I interviewed the you know I write about the two young teachers in West Virginia who were like upset when the governor said, you know, West Virginia had the 40th lowest teacher salaries in the country. Governor Jim Justice, the richest human being in the state of West Virginia, gives a big speech saying, "Guess what, folks? I'm going to be generous. I'm going to give you one percent." raise each year for the next five years, and it, and which would translate to $440 a year. And generally, the, pre, the increase in the healthcare premiums each year were more than that. And, and these two teachers, Jay O'Neill and Emily Comer, said, you know, screw that. And they started this Facebook page, and it, you know, it, it spread like prairie fire. And, and soon, there was this huge strike, and, and uh, Alberta Morjohn, uh, a social studies teacher in Oklahoma, saw what was happening in, in West Virginia, and he did the same thing. And, and, and in Arizona, Rebecca, uh, Rebecca Gorelli and, and Noah Carvelis, again, two young teachers, they did the same thing. Their Facebook page went from like zero to 20,000, 30,000 in 24 hours. Like people are upset, and, they, and they, want, they want justice for themselves. And one of the amazing things about the teacher strikes is 
you know, they try to show very much, you know, that we are not fighting just for ourselves. We are not just fighting for a zero point, you know, increased 0.7% in our paycheck, that we're fighting for more librarians and, and, and more, more social workers and more guidance counselors and more school nurses. And we're fighting for smaller class sizes, and we think it's terrible that there are all these tax cuts for corporations and the rich and the education budget is frozen year after year after year, and we have these 25-year-old textbooks. So I think you know, the teachers have become a really leading exponent, proponent of the idea of bargaining for the common good, that unions are not just, you know, the Wall Street Journal editorial page, business lobbyists you know, will often say, unions are narrow self-interest, they only care about themselves. And I think the teacher strikes very much aim to show that's not true. We, you know, we are fighting not just for us, we're fighting for the community. When the General Motors strike began, the, on the very first day, ter uh, Terry Dittus, the, the UAW's chief negotiator at GM said, we are not fighting just for ourselves, we are fighting for all of you. You're also, you, you don't want American factories going overseas, neither do we. Uh, Lordstown closed because, you know, GM said it was closing Lordstown because it said demand for Chevy Cruises had declined, uh, but GM kept it's a Mexican factory open that makes Chevy Cruises. The GM and, and, and um, the UAW also said, you know, everyone, we know you're worried about how good the jobs will be for your kids and your grandkids. We're worried about that too. We're very disappointed. We're very angry that 7% of GM's factory jobs are temporary jobs that pay just $15 an hour. The great GM paying just $15 an hour is crazy. So one of the one of the things the union won in, in, in its uh, settlement with GM was GM is eliminating the 10 the positions and raising people far above $15. So I, I want to close with uh, a theme that your esteemed Senator Sharon Br uh, uh, Brown often talks about, the importance of dignity for workers. And uh, so my, my mother, would always say to me, sorry, you have to treat all workers with dignity no matter what. So I, I, I uh, and, and my, word, my very last words in my acknowledgments are quoting my mother. Anyway, so uh, I wrote a chapter about the Memphis sanitation workers' strike of 1968. And that was a strike all about winning dignity. And I profile um, uh, Elmore Nickelberry, who was a sanitation worker you know, back in the 1950s and 60s in, in Memphis. And he went on strike. And you know, I had great long interviews with him down in Memphis. And you know, he served in the Korean War. He returned from Korea in 1953 to Memphis, his hometown. And he said, everyone called me boy. He said, I was treated better in South, with more respect in South Korea and Korea than I was in, in the United States. And, and uh, you know, Elmer Nickelberry told me that you know, his job is very humbling. You know, he, would, he was a sanitation worker. He said, everybody called us boy. He said, six, month, six decades after the strike. The supervisors, all of them white, also called us boy. You tell them, I ain't no boy, I am a man. And they'd keep calling you boy. Nickelberry was a tub toter. His job was to go into people's backyards, transfer their garbage into a 17-gallon round plastic tub, and then carry the tub to the truck in the street. The sanitation workers frequently filled their tubs with 30, even 40 pounds of garbage, often carrying the tubs on their backs or shoulders, often on top of their heads. Because the plastic tubs got banged around, 
quote, there would often be holes in the tub and the garbage and the maggots would crawl down your back and onto your clothes, Nickelberry told me with a scowl. A lot of the people weren't nice, he said. They say, boy, you left some guards behind. How about picking that stuff up? Nickelberry hated when homeowners called him garbage man, as if he were just garbage. The toters, virtually all in the black, complained that the sanitation garages didn't even have showers for them after the sweaty days hauling garbage. So he, had, so he just had to go on the bus after work, Nickelberry said. We smelled real bad. Nobody wanted to sit near us. Because many bus passengers steered clear of him, even sneered at him, he often skipped the bus and trudged the six miles home. The pay was as humbling as the working conditions. In 1968, after 14 years on the job, Nickelberry was earning $1.65 an hour, just five cents more than the federal minimum wage at the time. That $1.65 translates to just $12.20 today. The pay was so low that 40% of the trash collectors' families fell below the poverty line, with many qualifying for welfare and food stamps. So these workers were frustrated. They were fed up. Then two sanitation workers on a, on a rainy day, at the end of the day, um, to, to escape the rain, crawled into the back of the truck where the compactor was, where the bin was, to, to protect themselves from the rain. And all of a sudden, the compactor started up and crushed them to death. And the workers were incredibly angry because they had told the city for years the trucks are dangerous, they're defective, and, the, and the, the, um, the city ignored their pleas. So finally they went on strike, uh, and you know, day after day they walked the streets of Memphis carrying signs saying, I am a man. And uh, they weren't, you know, the mayor was a trillion percent op opposed to ever recognizing a union, to ever bargaining collectively. Uh, they weren't making much progress. Some of the African-American pastors in the city said, we have to escalate this. So they invited in the nation's foremost labor leader, Martin Luther King Jr. And, and Dr. King was a real hero. He usually backed the strikers. And, and you know, tragically, he was assassinated while in Memphis a day, or, you know, uh, the day before a big uh, rally for the, for the sanitation workers. And it was really only, a, uh, only after Dr. King's death that the city council said, you know, you know, screw the mayor, we have to settle this thing. This is a disgrace for, this is a, dis a moral disgrace for our city. And they, they, they finally reached a good contract. So at the end of the chapter, I come back to Elmore Nickelberry. He said, the 65 day strike, the 65 day strike had been an arduous struggle for Nickelberry and his family. He too was beaten and maced by the police. To feed his five children during the strike, he made money chopping wood and selling sweet potatoes from his father's farm. Nickelberry spelled out the benefits that the contract and the union had brought the workers. Quote, with the union we got a good raise, he said. We got showers, we got better working conditions, we got health benefits before we had to pay all our doctor bills ourselves. The biggest thing the union won, Nickelberry said, was dignity. The union came and we got respect. They stopped calling us boy, they started calling us a man, a sanitation man. Nickelberry was eventually promoted to crew chief on a truck. Previously, crew chiefs were, were, were always white. Half a century labor, half a century after the strike, uh, Elmer Nickelberry voiced disappointment that many, union, many young sanitation workers know very little about the struggles and hardships that he and 1,300 other workers endured. Quote, the union did a great job, Nickelberry said, if we didn't have a union, we would get nothing. We'd be in the same shape as before. 
You got a union to back you, you achieve more. The more people you have in a union, the more you get. They can talk for you more than you can talk for yourself. Happy to take questions. so much. Today at the City Club, we're listening to a forum with Stephen Greenhouse, former New York Times reporter and author of Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. We're about to begin the audience question and answer. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, or those of you jo joining us via our live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club and our staff will, work, will try to work it into the program. Holding the micro, microphone, microphones today are Office and Customer Experience Coordinator Tiffany France, over there, and Director of Pro Programming Stephanie Jansky. May we have the first question, please? Good afternoon. Um, over here. <laughs> you spoke of the decline of unionization since the 1970s but it seems to me that the decline has occurred in the private sector. Unions have done very well since the 1970s in organizing public sector workers. Uh, it, number one, is that a correct observation? And number two, if it is, what has been the problem uh, with union, uh, unions organizing private sector workers since the 1970s? You're absolutely correct, and I thank you on that. So um, the peak, of union, peak unionization rate in American history was 1954. More than one in three workers were in union, 35%. Uh, I glossed over this somewhat because Harriet discussed the numbers. So then it, it's fallen to 10.5% and in the, pri in the private sector just 6.4%, one in 16. In the public sector, it's still about one in three. So uh, until the 1960s, hardly, you know, it was, uh, government employees really weren't able to unionize. The, the National Labor Relations Act passed under FDR in 1935 only allowed private sector workers to unionize. And for public sector workers to unionize, individual, individual states and cities had to authorize that. So starting in the 1960s and 70s, there was a real boom in unionizing public sector workers, school teachers, social workers, uh, sanitation workers, firefighters, police officers. Um, so the, the huge decline, you're right, has been in the private sector and, and there's several many reasons for that. I mean, one is you know, the decline in manufacturing, globalization, imports, companies moving, moving their operations overseas. Uh, second, deregulation uh, in trucking and, 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 and airlines and communications. That hurt unions very badly. A third reason was, you know, so Ronald Reagan broke the illegal strike of, of uh, air traffic controllers in 1981 and fired 11,300 air traffic controllers. That really emboldened American companies to get much tougher on, on, you know, on, 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 on unions. I think a fourth factor was, you know, our capitalism has become much more Wall Street dominated, much more financialized, and, and Wall Street is much tougher than the managers of the 1950s in demanding that costs be cut and that you, you stand up to and, and, and you try to stomp on unions. I think all those factors Know, you know, have really done a lot to weaken public sector, pri private sector unions, you know, and I should mention, you know, the corruption scandals in certain unions in the 1950s and 1960s really hurt unions very badly, and also, as many of you know, you know, some unions don't do enough organizing, and, and, and they're, you know, um, 
they're just uh, lackadaisical about it. And I think unions would be much larger if more union leaders were fighting harder to unionize. But you know, there are humongous obstacles put up by corporations to succeed in unionizing. So I can imagine union leaders thinking, why should I spend $500,000 on an organizing drive to try to organize 2,000 workers if my chances of winning are only 52% because management fights against it, you know, hammer and tongue, tooth and nail? Um, first, I want to say thank you for coming and, and engaging us in this conversation. I think it's incredibly important. Um, I just wanted to make one point, and then I wanted to ask a question. Um, also, thank you for mentioning our wins here in Ohio, particularly with the steel mill here in Cleveland. Um, I, we've got a table of local one um, members here, and we are really excited and proud of the work that we've done. Um, because we recognize that we had to do things differently in this campaign because things are getting harder. Um, you know, everybody's tightening up their wallets and there's a lot of different levels of, um, you know, tears that you have to get through. So my question is, we represent uh, janitorial employees mainly in commercial real estate properties who, where the work is generally done by contracted workers. So property manager A, pays, you know, cleaning company B to hire the janitors to do the work. And I wanted to ask you, what is your take on the um, ability or like, do you have any creative ways to kind of get around that? Because everybody is like, you know, passing the buck on to somebody else and the property owner is saying, oh, I, you know, I'm not responsible for this and the, employer is saying, oh, well, um, you know, I have to do what my customer says. And, you know, I think we've been pretty successful, particularly with this campaign, but I'm curious to know if you have any other ideas, recommendations, suggestions, or thoughts around how we can strengthen our membership, you know, taking those factors into consideration. Thank you. Thank you. So, you know, the fact that, you know, that you succeeded at unionizing some of these people shows that one can succeed, but it's hard. And, and you, know, you know, Service Employees Union has in ways written a book on this. And in my first book, Big Squeeze, Tough Times for the American Workers, I wrote 10, 10 years ago, I devoted a chapter to what was one of the nation's most successful unionizing campaigns in, in recent decades, where uh, the Service Employees Union unionized 5,200 janitors in Houston. And it was extraordinary because there's a lot of workers. They were all part-time. Virtually all of them were immigrants. Hardly any of them spoke English. And they all worked for, con and they all worked for contractors. So it's, it's you know, triply, quadruply hard considering those obstacles. And the, the, the cleaning companies didn't want anything to do with unionization. And they said, we can't afford it because we're, we compete with all these other cleaning companies. If we're forced to pay more, it'll put us out of business. We'll lose contracts. So, the union really expertly you know, created this huge campaign to pressure the building owners. And, and, you know, it, um, and you know, I have a chapter about the Coalition of Motley Workers, a terrific you know, pro-farm worker group in Florida that was, you know, did an amazing job raising standards for 35,000 tomato pickers in, in Florida. And it tried little strikes against the various you know, growers, and they said, you know, we don't have much money, we can't pay much more. If we pay much more, we'll go out of business. And they, you know, and they realized we should be protesting McDonald's and Taco Bell. They have the big pockets to pay more, just as, you know, the SEIU in Houston and in other cities said, we have to go after the people who have a lot of money, a lot of money and who 
who hire the contractors, hire the cleaning contractors, and they could pay the cleaning contractors more to enable them to pay the workers more. But as you know, you know, it's a matter of power, exerting power, exerting pressure, and, and you know, sometimes you bring in other unions, sometimes you bring in politicians to work with you. You know, there are no magic tricks. It's really organizing and, and, and you know, maximizing pressure. So basically, you did what you were supposed to. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, people ask me about, you know, in the gig economy, you know, you know, how do you help DoorDash workers? You know, how do you help Seamless workers? How do you help Uber? It's hard, you know, when, when people consider independent contractors how to help them. And, and, and you know, New York City has 60, 70,000 Uber and Lyft drivers, and, and you know, the Trump administration says they're not employees, they're independent contractors, and therefore they can't unionize. So, but they gathered together with the help of labor unions and pressured the New York City Taxi Limousine Commission, which did a study that found that 96% of Uber and Lyft drivers in New York were making less than the minimum wage. So the Taxi Limousine Commission made a, recommend, made a recommendation that was enacted by the New York City Council to create a $17.22 minimum pay level per hour for Uber and Lyft drivers, and that's after expenses. So that's, it's not unionization, but it's a way of collective action to help workers collectively. Uh, the future of labor includes computers, artificial intelligence, and robots. I wonder if you could comment on, on that future for labor. So this morning, I discovered a terrific, very smart article by someone named Sherrod Brown and, and Liz Schuler, secretary-treasurer of the FLCIO for Wired magazine, one of the hip, high-tech magazines. And uh, they basically say, and I, I've said this in, in another op-ed piece, that you know, all, there's all this talk about the future of work. Uh, there'll be all these conferences with you know, three billionaires on the panel and, and two, you know, two high-paid McKinsey consultants and, and three high-paid CEOs and, and two or three you know, futurologists who've never talked to a worker in their lives. And then you know, in this conference on the future of work, hey, there's not a worker in the discussion. There's not a union member, not a worker representative. It's crazy that the people who will be most affected, you know, who will be bulldozed over by automation, are not included in the discussion. And, and Sherrod and Liz Schuler, you know, made that point saying, you know, workers need a seat at the table in these discussions. And they're pushing a, uh, I forget the exact name of the act, the Worker and Something Training Act that would require that when companies are uh, instituting new technologies that workers would, you know, the companies would have to sit down and discuss it, negotiate it with, uh, with the unions. And they held out um, the, the Hotel Workers Union again as a model. And, and in the Marriott contract, which I mentioned, the Culinary Union, which I mentioned in Las Vegas, they have contracts that require the hotels to give 180 days advance notice before they introduce big technologies um, that would replace a lot of workers. And, and they would call on the, uh, in, the, in the hotel workers contract, workers get six months severance pay when they lose their jobs to, to automation. So I think Sherrod and, and Liz Schuler had some good ideas. I just, you know, I wanna add, I wanna add one other. So I, I've been traveling around, a lot around the country giving speeches on the book. And a lot of labor people I speak to say they wish that Mr. Brown were running for president because <laughs> Because they think of all the Democrats out there, he would have the best chance of defeating Donald Trump. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No. Okay. Could you go to him? Go to this gentleman next. Okay. 
Thank you for mentioning uh, Francis Garcia. Could you also talk about the contribution that foreign-born people have made to unions in this country and their potential for the future? So uh, Samuel Gompers, the you know, first president of the American Federation of Labor, probably the most famous name in American labor, you know, he was born in London. Uh, I have a chapter about the, um, the uprising of 20,000 female garment workers. It was led by Clara Lemlich, uh, you know, who arrived uh, from Ukraine, a country in the news, uh, you know, when, she, when she was 16 years old. And, and you know, immigrants played a huge role in, in, uh, in unionizing, you know, whether in Cleveland or Cincinnati or Buffalo or St. Louis. You know, you know, a lot of the unionization was in the first half of the century when there you know, was a you know, high percentage of, of immigrant workers. And, and you know, look at the, you know, look at Cesar Chavez, look at uh, the unionization, recent unionization campaigns of the SEIU, of, 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 the, of Unite Here. You know, a lot of the Teamsters have been unionizing a lot of immigrant workers. Immigrants, you know, are a very important part of the labor movement. One of the things I discovered in researching the book is that Samuel Gompers, as much as we respect him, you know, was very anti-Chinese, was like racist anti-Chinese. He was one of the big sponsors of the Chinese Anti-Exclusion Act, and, and he didn't do enough to stop segregation uh, against blacks and various unions. But unions, fortunately, have come a long way, and, and they are, they don't discriminate against women, they don't discriminate against, discriminate against workers of color, you know, nearly, you know, much, much, you know, much, 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 much less than before. And partly because they realize that the future of the American workforce is women, is largely women and workers of color, and, and, that, and that's really changed. And, and, and those groups, women and workers of color, a lot of them are immigrants too, of course. And I answer, I mean, Dr. Ms. Ms. Yanella's question. I mean, you are, there was no answer as far as what she asked you about getting around the middleman. So, so far, I mean, and so your answer was, excuse my French, everyone, pretty much that we're screwed. I mean, there's no way to get around it. So with this gentleman, um, the, this gentleman mentioned about the future on robotics and everything. So I mean, it's really the, the idea is that they're taking the human factor out of everything. You know what I mean? And they don't, they don't understand the consequences of it because you cannot take the human factor out of it. It's all backwards now. It's the same companies that you spoke of that started when they first started. You had to hire people. You had to build. Right. Now those same companies are trying to do the same production, everything with less. I mean, it's ludicrous. You right, know, right. how can you do it? So, I mean, I agree with everything you say, sir. Um, so, I mean, you're absolutely right that you know American companies are doing everything they can to, you know, cut their labor costs to reduce their responsibilities and loyalty to their workers. They're hiring more temps, more freelancers, more contract, more contract workers. The great Google considered one of the great companies. It has 220,000 workers. 100,000 are regular full-time workers. 120,000 are either temps or contracted out workers. You know, the whole controversy about Uber and Lyft, they don't want to treat their drivers as regular employees. They want, you know, they want to consider them, you know, some type of, you know, independent contractor. So it's, it's really hard for 
workers and worker advocates, you know, it's like, it's a constant shell game. You know, you know, organizers and unions and worker advocates are trying to raise standards and companies are you know, playing this shell game, always changing things, you know, their attempts, their contracted out workers, uh, you know, the Obama administration was trying to make it, you know, make it easier to declare uh, employers, joint employers, that would make it easier to unionize them. Republicans and, and, and Trump or the Trump NLRB are taking that away. So it's, I mean, you're right, it's very hard uh, and, and I wish it were easier to get around. But there are no, you know, there's no silver bullet. I wish there were, so. So, um, hi, and thanks again for coming to Cleveland. So the, the climate crisis is bearing down on us and it's getting scarier every day. And the only proposal um, on the table in Washington right now that's big enough to really solve the problem and transition our, our economy fast enough uh, to reduce our carbon emissions in time uh, is the Green New Deal. Um, and I wonder if you could just talk about the Green New Deal and the millions of jobs that it could create uh, and why it might be a good deal for workers. So I, I was talking with a few congressmen yesterday and, and some are big supporters of the Green New Deal and some said it slights workers, it doesn't pay enough attention to the workers who would be hurt as the coal mines are closed down and the coal-fired and gas-fired power plants are closed down. So yes, theoretically, if we had a huge Green New Deal, which would require lots of infrastructure to, you know, to, you know, build, you know, cleaner, cleaner power and wind turbines and retrofit, retrofit uh, buildings and, you know, it could create, you know, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of jobs. Uh, and, and you know, we, you know, we have to do far more to deal with global warming. We're not doing nearly enough, and Donald Trump is going totally in the wrong direction. Uh, and China's going in the wrong direction, too. That's a whole other thing. So uh, you know, I think the environmentalists and labor, and labor union people have to be more sensitive to each other's needs. I think, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is trying to do really good stuff with the Green New Deal. She has a great vision, but a lot of union people and workers felt shortchanged that, you know, they felt that they weren't listened to enough, that they were going to be bulldozed by it. And, and you know, one of the reasons I'm wearing, you know, I, I believe in a blue-green deal. We should have a blue-green new deal. Um, you know, where, where workers and environmentalists, you know, uh, you know, I think Nancy Pelosi should appoint a committee with, you know, Richard Trump, head of the AFL-CIO, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, people from the Sunrise Movement, Terry O'Sullivan from the Laborers Union, who's been most outspoken and criticizing, and say, Folks, you've got to sit down. You know, there are great opportunities here to fight global warming and create good middle-class jobs. And, and in my state, New York, uh, a professor at Cornell School of Industrial Labor Relations, Lara Skinner, who's fabulous, she's, you know, she's very concerned about the tensions between environmentalists and labor. And she set up this group of like you know, half dozen you know, big New York labor leaders, construction, construction union people, and said, let's figure out a way that we could you know, promote uh, the fight against global warming and protect good union jobs. So they came up with this plan to uh, provide New York State with like 40, 50% of its power through offshore wind turbines, you know, which, is, which are pretty common now in Denmark and increasingly in Germany, and they are hardly exist at all in the United States, and they have this ambitious plan that would create tens of thousands of jobs. Some of these turbines, you know, would be like two, 300 feet tall. And it would require steel workers and, 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 and plumbers and electricians, and, and they'd have to build a new seaport, and it would involve longshoremen. It would create you know, lots and lots of good jobs. And, and when they 
this, this Cornell professor and the, and, and the union leaders came up with this plan and they showed it to environmentalists, they said, wow, that's fabulous. So I think you know, you, you know, union people, environmentalists, really can cooperate and can have a shared vision to promote good jobs and a better environment. Today at the City Club, we have been listening to a forum with Stephen Greenhouse, former New York Times reporter and author of Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. Today's forum is part of our workforce development series sponsored by the Deaconess Foundation. We're delighted to have Lissy Rand, Rand and Russell Lamb with us here today. We appreciate your support of City Club programming. Is that right? Did you get that right? Okay. Mr. Greenhouse also appears as part of our Authors in Conversation series, supported in part by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from the Cuyahoga Arts and Culture, from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We are grateful to all of the residents of Cuyahoga County for their support through that public grant. Community partners for today's labor forum, or today's forum, include the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland, the Northeast Ohio Education Association, the North Shore Federation of Labor, and Policy Matters Ohio. Our hospitality partner is the Metropolitan at the Nine Hotel. We appreciate your partnership. Additionally, we welcome guests at a table hosted by Friends of David Nash, I think it's back there, the usual, <laughs> the usual suspects. We're happy to have you here. The sale of Mr. Greenhouse's book, again, Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor is provided by a cultural exchange. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Mr. Greenhouse. Thank you uh, and thank you, members and friends of the City Club, uh, with special thanks to our City Club members whose financial support makes our work possible. To find out more about upcoming forums and how you can support the City Club, visit us online at cityclub.org. This forum is now adjourned. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> I think it was good that I for information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.